hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook and I'm joined again today by James Moore and Charlie Eccleshare. Tottenham season should really be over by now, but in fact it's actually just starting to get back underway, Charlie, isn't it, with the return to training this week? Yeah, and... Um... Yeah, and I feel like when play does resume, they'll they'll have a decent chance still of top five and that kind of thing. But yeah, back to, I mean, sm- it's small groups and, and the way it's been, as I understand it, is there are like six pitches and generally you've had like a couple of players on a pitch, um, you're often using like half a pitch each. So I think it still feels quite, um, you know, different from normal, but, you know, the players, uh, from what I was told, were really keen to get back to training and and you can totally understand that i think everyone's keen to get back to you know as much normality as possible so i think that's been that's been good and um yeah and that's why you had Mourinho of cycling around from pitch to pitch uh keeping an eye on everything son as well was on a bike i think so yeah it looked like i mean training pitches are always described as people are all smiles aren't they um but those pictures did look like they were all having a a jolly nice time sometimes you get solemn faces at training when the manager's under pressure i think that's the cliche when uh when the manager's you get a lot of solemn faces but i think yeah i kind of think of all smiles and then two people sharing a joke as they were put through their paces or Mourinho herring around on a push bike (laughs) yeah that's why it stuck out wasn't it it's like this doesn't look like the generic training picture so this week the um over the weekend, the government announced the stage two of uh, contact training. Are we, are we expecting this to get to start being integrated into what Spurs do this week? The feeling I get is that they are they're kind of raring to go, um, both Mourinho and the players, and like I, I can understand that because you know the players are all coming back from injuries and things like that. It does feel as though things have come together a bit, um, and now it's just that last. Um, well hopefully what will be the last few weeks uh and you're seeing like this gradual stepping up um so yeah uh, i think like p- potentially you know a really important few weeks for them coming up and james you you've got reasons to be optimistic for spurs when football finally gets back underway in sort of three weeks time roughly well yeah the thing I think everyone keeps forgetting is that obviously there's this big question mark over, and you probably haven't personally forgotten this, but there's this big question mark over Manchester City's uh, status as a, as a Champions League club next season, whatever that may be. So as Charlie kind of alluded to before, fifth place could be enough for the Champions League and, and Spurs aren't too far away from that. Obviously Manchester United are there at the moment and Spurs do have a quote-unquote home game against Manchester United to come. So, I, I you know, I don't... I, as kind of negative as we were about about the team at the point that the, the match is stopped, I mean, actually, I do think there is sort of some degree of optimism to be had there, and particularly given pretty much all of the players are, are back are back fully fit now. I mean, actually, if they won that game against Manchester United and took it from there, I think they'd have every opportunity to get into the Champions League. And you know, clearly, you'd have to deem that a successful season given some of the lows that we saw in the first half of the campaign. Yeah, the piece I did looking at how Mourinho has been getting an edge over the last few weeks, um, you know, it, it looked at that. And, and if Spurs beat United in their first game back, they could be a point off what is, as it stands, going to get them into the Champions League, which feels uh, remarkable given how kind of what the mood was like towards the end of um, before the football was stopped period. Um, but it definitely is still on, for, you know, and and now they have all their key players back, basically everyone's fit. It's It does feel like they've got a pretty decent chance. 
Are we expecting Kane and Son to be fit enough to start playing as soon as the football starts? I think so. And my understanding is that Bergvine's recovering well, um, you know, and in a good place after the birth of his first child. He he could be available as well. Sissoko will be available. Um, you know, he was someone who was getting back into training when uh, when play was stopped before. So that's a big, um, you know, section of the squad available that wasn't. I mean, if you remember, and I, I'm, I'm sure you will, that period before when, you know, Delhi was playing as a false nine or, you know, Mora was playing up there and they you know, barely had enough players to get out and attack. All of a sudden you look at it and you're like, that's a that's a pretty tidy um, front four, front three, however they want to line up. It feels like a complete, completely different lifetime ago, back when we used to do podcasts saying, oh, I can't believe they're still playing Lucas up front, hitting long balls to him, he's <laughs> only five foot seven. And uh, on the one hand, it feels incredibly quaint to be complaining about that. But also, you know, I'd like to think that when football returns, Spurs will have a bit more firepower up front than simply Lucas. Do you know what's so weird as well? Like I mentioned this in the article. Do you remember at the end of February, Mourinho was saying like he wished he could fast forward to July. He said that on a few occasions. It's so weird that that has almost <laughs> happened in footballing terms that after that, they played a couple of league games and football will have been stopped until pretty much then. It's, uh, it's, it's just so strange how, uh, how things have worked out. Yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? Um, elsewhere in Spurs land... Um... So there have been quite a few reports in France and Portugal last week saying that Spurs were close to appointing Luis Campos of Lille as the new director of football or into a new technical role at the club. Um, Spurs have been steering people away from this. Uh, We wrote a story on it saying that the word is certainly out that Campos would like to go to Spurs. He's obviously a long-time friend of Jose Mourinho, having worked with Mourinho at Real Madrid almost almost 10 years ago. Uh, but as far as we know, nothing is in place for this move to happen. It, there's a suggestion that it might just be internal politics at Lille. Um, Campos has got an issue with the current owner, Gerard Lopez. He has been offered a new contract to stay at Lille. He's also been offered a return to Monaco, where, of course, he built that fantastic Monaco team before he came to Lille, where he's also done exceptional work there, recruiting players on a tight budget. Um, so I'm, I don't think it's necessarily something that is going to happen, but it is it is a kind of big live topic around the club at the moment. Uh, guys, do you think it would make sense for Spurs to appoint a big-name director of football, not something they've had for a while? I mean, I, I can definitely see the benefits. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I think a year ago, maybe you would have said yes, but actually, uh, we had a few conversations about this a couple of months ago, and the recruitment if you kind of strip away the problems the club have had with and Dombele, the recruitment over the last year or so has been really good. I mean, if you look at, you know, Lo Celso has clearly been a huge success eventually. Uh, Bergwijn has, has shown signs of promise. And we know Dombele is a good player. We're not sure exactly how that's going to pan out, but clearly he's massively talented. So you'd have to say that the recruitment has been reasonably good. Um, so, you know, from what we hear about Campos, it sounds like he has this kind of mantra of trying to sign players for kind of two, two, three, four million pounds, which you can see would be particularly appealing to Daniel Levy. The, the thing that Spurs haven't really done particularly well, I don't think, in the last couple of years to sell players. It's felt like there have been players lingering around for a while. I'm not necessarily talking about Ericsson in this case, but fringe players who maybe the club haven't been able to sell quickly enough that you, you feel maybe if there was someone in place to do those kind of deals and kind of ease the pressure on the manager and on Levy as well. That would make perfect sense. But I, I don't think I don't think that the club are kind of 
I've recruited terribly in the last sort of 12, 18 months. It's, it's probably the period before that that the problems really were there. But yeah, I, I, think I can definitely see the benefit of it. Jack, from your, your piece was really interesting on, on him. And I just wondered from the people you spoke to, um, you know, you, you obviously gave a good sense of what he's like and how he operates. Do, do, you, do you feel like he would be a good fit for, you know, th- to solve some of the problems that Spurs historically have had? As, as James says, maybe not so much in the last year, but, you know, ha- that they may have had in the past? I think he'd be really, really good. I think there's no question that he is very good at what he does. Um, he's proven that twice now. He built the Monaco team that won the league in 2016-17. And I know at the start they spent huge money on Falcao, Moutinho, James Rodriguez, but then they started going to a slightly different model and by bought players for cheaper, almost all of whom they then sold for big profits. You know, Bernardo Silva, Fabinho, Benjamin Mendy all those guys. And then at Lille, he's been working on a much, much smaller budget. Like, it hasn't been a Monaco situation at all. And a team that was a bit of a shambles when he took over came second last year. And then this year, they were fourth when the league got stopped. And they'll pro- they would probably have come third if the season had been played out. And he's done this again while making profits for the team, buying low and selling high. So I think he is fantastically good at what he does. I think the big question as to whether or not this would work, and I'd be interested in your take on this, Charlie, is like, would it be, if you were appointing Mourinho's best mate into this role, would you effective, would Levy effectively be handing over Mourinho so much power over recruitment as to make him kind of bulletproof in a way which is maybe not necessarily the best way of, you know, managing internal club politics? Yeah, that's really interesting. And I also think it's interesting as to what it means in the longer term because people generally have viewed Mourinho as a bit of a short-term appointment I think you know typically Mourinho has stuck around for like three years max so it would be a huge um, vote of confidence in him uh, to appoint you know a really close ally and you know someone who you'd think they would want to build something together so there, there are loads of implications for it and uh, and yeah, I mean, we've seen as well at other clubs that you, when you do go down this route and then you start appointing too many people who have worked together previously and then someone might feel they're frozen out of the decision-making process. So as much as generally people uh, favor this model, it does come with downsides if you don't manage it correctly. You know, there are lots of people who want to have a say in things which can work really well, uh, but it can lead to issues um, and arguments and disputes. So if they are to do this and go down this model, I mean, as Spurs have shown previously, I mean, when they went to this model in 2004 and they brought in Jacques Santini and uh, Frank Arneson and Santini and Arneson fell out, Santini was gone in a couple of months. So you do have to navigate it carefully. So it, w- it would be really, really interesting to see how that affects the power dynamic. And especially, as you say, given the context of Mourinho and Campos being, being very close already. I think if we look at the example of West Ham, I suppose, where Manuel Pellegrini was allowed to bring in his friend Mario Husios as sporting director. And then, of course, when Sullivan and Gold sacked Pellegrini, they had to sack Husios as well. That shows that ideally you don't want a you don't want a director of football who is too closely aligned with the manager. You want someone who can give you independent advice. And that's why it would be a huge, you know, hypothetically it would be a huge political boost for Jose now if Campos were to come in. But you wonder whether is, is it really in Levy's nature to hand over that much power to a manager? Like, he's never really done that before. Even with Pochettino, it's not as if Pochettino appointed... I suppose there was Paul Mitchell who came in as director of football, but it's... I mean, it wouldn't be quite the same, would it? 
No, that's a really good point. And actually, like you do, the the point of a director of football or technical director is to be there, almost irrespective of the coach. You know that they are supposed to be more strategic and not uh, tied up with a particular coach or manager. Because now in modern football, the understanding is that they are going to move on much more quickly than they used to. So, uh, yeah, that that would be an interesting subplot to that as to as to whether then as you say you are handing over too much power and also you are it's almost short-termist that it's being predicated on a singular regime rather than just you know methods that will outlast whoever is the head coach at any given time how often does it actually work out that way though do you think that a club will bring in a a director of of football or a sporting director maybe on on the continent and they'll, they'll be there and kind of oversee kind of five, six, seven managers. I can't really think of too many. I mean, Monty, I guess, is maybe the yeah, one Monty. you would say. But I, I, don't, I don't really think... I can't really think of too many, particularly in England, that you, I kind of associate a, a, a director of football with a particular manager, really. And that's certainly been the way it's generally worked at Spurs. I mean, which isn't to say it's, that's necessarily makes it right. But I, I, don't, I, I don't know. I think people always have this idea in their head that director of football will, will kind of be there for a decade and oversee several managerial changes and you know rebuild the team several times but that that isn't really something that's happened that often that I can think of maybe it is because someone like Monchi stands out you know he's held up as one of the greats and I think was able to do that um but maybe maybe you're right maybe it is just harder in practice um because you do get uh inevitably like tarred with the same brush if a manager's regime doesn't work then you're probably going to be held to a large extent responsible as well yeah, I'm just trying to think of examples. Like, I can't. There's obviously been like successful directors of football who have been at a club for a long time. So, you know, people in Italy rave about Paratici at Juventus, but then he was his reign is, you know, I guess Conte and then Allegri and now Sarri at Juve. But then he's not really, you know, I don't know whether you'd say he he was really pulling the strings over and above the heads of the managers. I suppose, to be honest, in English football, the most, um, this is going to sound very biased, but the most successful director of football is Cheeky Bajiristein, but who mm-hmm. has... Well, that is a know, really good example, yeah. Who appointed Pellegrini and then Guardiola, but even then, he's not someone whose like, authority is independent of the manager. He was someone who was appointed so that they could get Guardiola, and he succeeded mm. in doing that, but he is even though he appointed Pellegrini first, like ultimately he is so wrapped up in the whole Guardiola project that he's not really like an independent voice as such, I don't think. I mean, Chelsea have had what, like Arneson, Emanalo, various people in those kind of roles. But generally speaking, I can't think of anyone who stands out as being fantastically successful in the job. Uh, Jordi Cruyff at Maccabee Tel Aviv had a series of good managers. Uh, Jukanovic, Peter Bosch, uh, but then he ended up he ended up appointing himself as manager at the very at the end. Maybe that's something that all directors of football ultimately want to do. Anyway, <laughs> um, back onto Tottenham. Uh, another big thing that happened this week is Mauricio Pochettino gave his first big interview to the British press since his sacking. Uh, this was something that he did on Thursday morning after his uh, period of gardening leave with Tottenham ended thereby allowing him to speak freely. Uh, this was an interview he did with Dave Heitner of The Guardian, which was then shared around and published by other media, including us. So I did a story on this, which we launched on Friday evening. Uh, I think Pochettino's quotes here were fantastic. I'm sure all Spurs fans and people listening to the podcast have read them. Of course, you can read them on The Athletic as well as elsewhere. Uh, Pochettino did talk about his future and what he might do next. But for me, the most interesting stuff was 
of looking back at Tottenham and really picking through the reasons why it worked well and then also the reasons why it went wrong in the last you know in the second half really of 2019 um the bit I'm sure you guys have all got favorite bits but the bits that really stood out to me was looking back at the Champions League final and he said it was difficult to stop crying to stop feeling bad afterwards and then he said um I knew that after five years and with the way we were working and all the things that had happened, it was going to be difficult. It changed a little bit in our minds the possibility to stay open, to design another plan, a strategy to build again, a different chapter, a different project should be difficult for us to maintain, to keep improving. And I think what he's getting at here is something that we talked about on the podcast a few weeks ago when we talked about the Champions League run, which is that the the Champions League run really was the end. Like, even though Pochino stuck around for the first half of this season... Uh, the Champions League final was meant to be the climax and everyone really knew deep down afterwards it would be very difficult to go again. Charlie, what did you make of what Pochettino said? Yeah, no, it's funny because I had that bit highlighted as well. I thought that was really interesting. And and I do uh, I do still wonder what would have happened if he um, if they had won the Champions League and whether he would have left, as you know, a lot of people think, or whether uh, you know, he might he might have been he might have been tempted to stay on. Yeah, I mean, as ever, he's he's such an interesting guy to hear from. Obviously, I think mean, he comes across really, really well. Um, you know, the stuff he says about Mourinho, um, you know, he's very gracious and you know seems genuine when he says all of that. So, you know, I think he's. I think a lot of Spurs fans were saying, "Oh, this makes me miss him because you know he does he does always come across um, really well and." Yeah, I thought thought about trophies as well. He was interesting. Uh, you know, he talks about Claudio Ranieri, um, about how it took him a long time to win a trophy. And then, and also, you know, just made the point that each season, very few teams, you know, win the big trophies. And what did he, you know, what did he say? If we talk like this, then 90% of coaches in the world are losers. Uh, coaches are not thinking only about winning titles. There are many other things around. Um, and I'm sure the critics would say, well, yeah, Pochettino would say that. But yeah, I think it was just an, uh, you know, that does give an interesting insight into what it's like being a manager currently, even at the top level, which, um, which he was. But yeah, I mean, it was it was great to hear from him, and I mean, God, how interesting is it going to be his next move? Um, whatever club gets him, I mean, I'm sure he'll be a big success there as well. So, um, yeah, just fascinating to see to see where he goes next. And, you know, he talks about how recharged he's been and all of this sort of stuff. You get the sense he's uh, pretty raring to go. So, yeah, your move, whoever it is, Real Madrid, we, we used to think. Uh, Newcastle, I know there's been speculation there. So, yeah, but uh, yeah, really, really good to hear from him again. James, how did you feel reading this, reading these quotes yeah, from Pochettino? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I, clearly uh, he had a lot to get off his chest, but it, it definitely kind of feels like he's holding back a bit. Um, I mean, I, I actually thought that the stuff he said about the stadium move was quite interesting. Um, it felt sort of quite pointed. The fact that he highlighted that there was that one season where Spurs played home matches in three stadiums because they had uh, Wembley, the the cup game they played at MK Dons, and then the, the last few games of the season played at the new stadium um I think you know we talk a lot about the kind of financial burden that that placed on uh the club um but you do kind of forget how difficult it must have been as a manager to kind of not be able to kind of have a home stadium for for two and a half years really and and you know I, I know they should have been used to playing at Wembley by the time they left but 
it's not quite the same and it never it was never really going to be it never really felt permanent so you can never really kind of you know you can never really kind of settle as, as a kind of home stadium I don't think and I, I, I think that kind of got overlooked I think how big an obstacle that was for him and how well he did to kind of steer the team through that uh, you know clearly it's unfortunate that um, it all kind of went off the rails a little bit as soon as they got into the new ground but you know I think it's obviously a a massive success story that he managed to kind of keep things ticking over in the meantime. But that stadium thing, as you said, like that playing at Milton Keynes, I mean, it was kind of lost at the time in the kind of banter between Arsenal fans and Spurs fans on Twitter and whatever. But that is extraordinary. I mean, imagine, yeah, how some managers would react to that. Like you're talking about a club that that season reached the Champions League final and were playing a home game in Milton Keynes. As opposed to, as, as a one-off in that situation, if you're the manager, you, you just kind of tell your team to treat it as an away game, right? I guess. Because it's, it's not like you're travelling that far and it's not like it's sort of a... Uh, with respect to Watford, it's not like a sort of intense game in terms of the rivalry. So, you know, I guess you kind of just flip it and just say, treat this as an away game. But... It's still such a weird situation, and you know, it's weird for fans as well. It's you know, to 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 keep the club on a on a relatively even keel in that time, I think is a, is a is a massive credit to it. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that the what really shines through in this is like just the very difficult circumstances he was working under, primarily not having a home game for two years, but then also. Um, you know, the lack of money they had relative to their rivals, and then you do have to remember, I think, given how badly it ended that. What he achieved at Tottenham was incredible, given all those circumstances. Um, James, reading this, did it give you any sense that you wished either Pochettino or Daniel Levy had done anything differently? He almost sort of suggests towards the end that it was almost kind of inevitability that it would end this way eventually, right? You know, all all managerial reigns will come to an end, and actually, five years is a pretty five successful years is a is a very good run. yeah, clearly anyone could tell you that if the club had spent more money, particularly in 2016 and 2017, then perhaps they would have won trophies. But, uh, you know, clearly there are reasons that didn't happen. He admits it was right for him to get sacked. He said, we finished in the way that no one wanted, but the end, it needed to happen. Like, I think he, he is... Sometimes I think you get people who say, well, you know, they shouldn't have sacked Pochino and replaced him with Mourinho. Uh and and go from that to saying to suggesting that they should have stuck stuck out with Pochino for all of this season, and then tried to go again next season. But I think in reality, it was whatever you might think about Mourinho, it was absolutely right to get rid of Pochino when they did. Um, though that said, nobody knew at the time that coronavirus was going to happen, and maybe in in a world in which Tottenham had stuck with Pochettino, then this stoppage might have given them the freshness to really go again next season but who knows like Daniel Levy didn't know in November that this pandemic was going to happen so we shouldn't second guess him too much it also would have made the squad rebuild all that harder probably I mean given we're saying that you know for for Pochettino to have stayed they would have had to do a massive rebuild uh well that's going to be extremely hard to pull off in the current climate post-pandemic completely yeah yeah, and actually that, sorry, that, and just to go very off topic, that reminds me of something that I was going to say about Campos, which is that, like, one of the big arguments for changing the recruitment and getting in someone like Campos is that Spurs, like everyone, are going to have a lot less money to spend in the next few years, much less than they would have budgeted for. And so, of course, they're going to have to react differently. Anyway, um, enough Pochettino. I want to talk about something which I really, really enjoyed reading, which is Charlie's interview with the great David Bentley. 
um, which, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic interview. It's very, very revealing, both about Bentley's career and his personality and retiring as early as he did, why he was so good at Blackburn, why he couldn't really be as, as good when he went to Tottenham. Um, you can read it on The Athletic. We still have a free trial. If you use promo code SPURSPOD, that's theathletic.com forward slash SPURSPOD. Charlie, he's obviously a, a man who uh, divides opinion, David Bentley. What did you make of him? Yeah, um, I mean, he's really interesting, engaging person to talk to. He He's a very unique character. You know, he thinks very independently. Uh, so independently, I think that that ultimately is why he couldn't really withstand the the lifestyle that being a professional footballer entails you know he he did like to do his own thing he didn't like to be shackled and um you know always told you have to be here at this certain time and whatever and and it's interesting reading the comments because yeah he does still divide opinion a lot of people like fair play to him you know he's you know he just did his own thing and he realized but this is the thing as well like he he was keen to point out he he lived the dream for a few years for like the first half of his career and then he said it stopped being exciting. It stopped being fun. And so he didn't do it anymore. Like it's that simple for him. But obviously for most people, the idea of reti- of playing your last game of football at 28, when as a teenager, you were tipped to be, or later than that, you know, into his early 20s, he was playing for England and tipped to be the next David Beckham and all of this sort of thing. It, I think people find that very strange. Um, but when you hear him talking about it, it it's an individual thing and it, it totally makes sense from his point of view. Um and I'm always really fascinated to hear from sports people who take these kind of decisions because I think it's so ingrained in us that everyone should love being an elite level athlete. Then when you actually break it down and think what it involves, it doesn't really surprise me that some people think, you know, it's a lifestyle where you can't really have any fun. You can't ever make social plans. You have to be your, your whole life. You're told this is what you're doing when. And, you know, for the vast majority, the rewards, be it financially, be it playing in front of packed stadiums, et cetera, et cetera, make it totally worth it. There probably then there's a subsection of people who don't enjoy it all that much, but feel they don't really know what else they could do. That's all they've ever known. And then you get a very small proportion who decide, actually, this isn't for me. I I don't want to do this anymore. And, you know, did an interview with Espen Bardson earlier in the season and it was similar sort of things. So... Uh, I found it really interesting and yeah he's uh, he's a very engaging talker he tells some great stories uh, there's an element maybe he was a bit of a man out of time I think I think I spoke to both of you about this and I mentioned it in the article that if he'd maybe played football 10 years earlier and there was a bit more uh, you know you, you could maybe get away with a bit more I mean there's a telling line he talks about he watched England growing up and he said you know I want to play for England I want to be in the dentist chair um you know it's sort of semi-joking but I think that you know part of it was what you know the camaraderie that you know when we think of Euro 96 yes we think of uh the great goals but we also think of the great team spirit and and when you hear players talk about it that's what they reflect on as well as as the matches whereas Bentley went into the England setup and as he says in the piece he was a bit like is is this it like you know everyone keeping to themselves being told they have to be bed in bed by 10 p.m by Fabio Capello and they can't eat ketchup and I think he just, yeah, he just stopped enjoying it. Um, but yeah, there's loads in there. I mean, you know, sorry, sorry, yeah. I mean, he talks about Arsenal and Tottenham and Blackburn and England and yeah, loads in there. James, how did the interview tally with your memories of Bentley as a Spurs player? I think you can kind of tell 
quite quickly when Bentley arrived that that something had kind of clicked with him that he wasn't he wasn't enjoying football in the way that he had been um, as a young player at Arsenal and then when he first went to Blackburn. I mean, even in the season immediately before he joined Spurs, um, you know, he had this amazing season, didn't he, at Blackburn where he set up like a ludicrous number of goals for Santa Cruz. I can't remember off the top of my head how many it was. Obviously, it didn't work for Santa Cruz at City either, did it? It was just like, you know, they brought the best out of each other, but then they were kind of separated and it just didn't quite work for either of them. Santa Cruz in the piece says, you know, at the time, uh, in 2008, he says like Bentley could play for any of the best teams in the world. And at the time, Santa Cruz was a Champions League winner with Bayern. So, you know, I think it had uh, quite a lot of gravitas. I mean, I was really excited when Spurs signed him. He looked like an absolutely brilliant, like uh, spectacular player at Blackburn. I remember this goal he scored at Reading. I think I mentioned it to Charlie the other week. Mm. Um, where he kind of like surges forward with such power down the right, cuts inside and hits the ball like right across the keeper into the top corner. An, an amazing goal. Um, and you just think that that was the kind of thing that Spurs didn't have in the team at that point. And you thought, you know, someone, someone scoring goals from long range in midfield would be like a massive benefit to the team. Um, and to be fair, he did score one or two memorable long-range goals, but I don't mm. think you could argue that he had the consistency that he did at Blackburn. Um, yeah, to me, it kind of felt like I, he he was an extravagant player who really enjoyed showing off, and uh, when he was on an upward trajectory, that was all working, and it was all it was all great, and he was happy and enjoying it. But then the second it the second it kind of you know it got a bit tricky, and he lost a bit of form and a bit of confidence that. Suddenly, he, he just realised he didn't enjoy it at all. Um, and as a fan, when your club has spent fifteen million pounds on a player, obviously, obviously that's a little bit galling when you think they could have spent it on somebody else. But on a human level, obviously, you kind of you kind of eventually realise that you know if 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 you're not enjoying it, you're never going to be able to do, to perform to the best of your ability. One thing that I found interesting about it is is the way that it kind of ran counter to what we generally assume about Harry Redknapp. In the sense that, I think ben, the quote from, and then Harry came in and you felt it was a different setup. At that point, it started to be less enjoyable. Now, everyone's like assumptions about Harry Redknapp is that Redknapp was this like great uh, motivator and relaxer and sort of setter of the right tone who helped to get the best out of everyone. And he, you know, he obviously he obviously was a much better Redknapp sort of manager for Spurs than Wande Ramos was. He got them into fourth place twice. And yet, for whatever reason, it seems like Redknapp and Bentley just didn't quite click in the way that people expected. Charlie, why do you think that was? Yeah, it's interesting as well, because Bentley says that, you know, they were quite similar in lots of ways. Um, I, I do think the uh, <laughs> the bucket of water incident did really change things, because Bentley did play quite a bit in the second half of that uh, 9 10 season. Um so, you know, he wasn't totally out of favour. But then I think I think Redknapp was moving towards, at that point, wanting to be taken more seriously. You know, I mean, we remember how much he bristled, would probably be an understatement, at the Wheeler Dealer comment and, you know, was moving away from that reputation. And so I think that having a player like Bentley who would take the piss a bit, you know, he was cheeky, you know, he'd kind of make jokes and that kind of thing. Um, and Redknapp has said since, you know, you wouldn't, with the bucket thing from Bentley's point of view and for, for those who haven't seen this when Spurs qualified the Champions League David Bentley with some other Spurs players walks in and drenches Redknapp giving his post-match interview and Bentley sort of sticks around and puts his arm around him and like you know jumps about Bentley saw it as just a bit of fun um Redknapp's view was and said you know you wouldn't do that with Alex Ferguson why are you doing that with me 
And so it, he felt he was undermined. Uh, and so I think maybe it was just they were moving in different directions that Bentley was still, you know, saw football as, you know, you should be able to have a bit of a joke and a laugh and it's not super serious. Whereas, uh, and, and probably thought that Redknapp would be aligned with that way of thinking because his reputation up till then had been as, you know, Harry, arm round the shoulder, all the players' best mates. But Redknapp was moving, you know, towards you know, being taken a lot more seriously. You know, Spurs got into the top four twice under him. He was, you know, he was being touted as the next England manager, all of this sort of thing. So I think those high jinks didn't really go down as well with him as they maybe they would have done earlier in his career, or maybe just as they would have done in our perceptions of Harry Redknapp. Um, so I think from what seemed like a relationship where they would complement each other well, there was actually then a bit of a clash and Bentley kind of represented what Redknapp was trying to move away from. Some of these quotes from Bentley are absolutely amazing. Like he is, I have to admit, I always thought, I kind of assumed he was a bit of an, a bit of an idiot. But um, he's obviously like a fantastic talker. Like, ju- just I'm just going to read some of them out here. Football for me is an art form, a creative art form that you express with natural ability, which you maximise through the dedication of being fit. I'd like to see some of that natural element come back into the game a little bit. That off-the-cuff maverick kind of expression. Like he—he he does actually sound like a real football romantic saying this. Like he—I'm mm. uh, not—I'm not—I'm not taking the piss here. He sounds like Jorge Valdano, or even mm-hmm. a little bit like. You know, like when you get kind of ex-players who are looking back at how the game has changed and it's not the kind of football they grew up with and they're not happy with it. And um, and yet for Bentley, this has happened incredibly quickly because football has changed so much in the last 20, 20 years. And Bentley, as you say in your piece, was like right at the forefront of this. He has he's seen football move away from what he wanted it to be in the course of his own career, in the through the course of his like mid-20s, which is an amazing thing to happen to someone. Speaking that romantically about football, it did just like it did. It did just make me think a tiny bit about Pochettino, who does obviously, you know, who is you know very much at the forefront of modern football, but does love to talk about modern football with this kind of great traditional romantic language about expression and passion and uh, you know going expressing yourself how you want and playing as if you're a child and that sort of thing and it just it just made me think i know you have alluded to this in the piece in one of the really really interesting interesting section whether you thought somebody like a pochettino might have been able to get more out of bentley because it does feel as if there was so much left untapped from bentley but in his tottenham career yeah well two things that i mean firstly he bentley grew up not really supporting a team he grew up supporting players and those players were gaza Cantona, and Bergkamp. and you know that that was how he viewed football um and he played as a number 10 throughout the youth um you know the youth setup at arsenal that was what he dreamed about and yeah it, it did football then did change and there wasn't really sort of scope to have that kind of player and and then yeah as you say with pochettino as well as being someone who bentley might have been better 10 years earlier I mentioned he also might have been better 10 years later because tactically it feels like we are a lot more flexible now and a player like him would probably play as like an inside forward in the two or the three behind a striker rather than playing on the right wing where you know some of the teams he played in his job was as he says more or less to get up and down the pitch put crosses in and and, the, and that's the thing as well it's where it's like I said to him you know, would you would you almost be better off when it's like ignorance is bliss, where you, you don't really challenge that. You're just like, well, I'm playing professional football. I'm getting in the team, you know, whatever. I'll just go along with it. But he 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 is quite idealistic, I think, and and just didn't really get as much satisfaction out of that as as he as he thought he would. Um, 
you know, and, and that was fine when he was at Blackburn and he enjoyed the dressing room side of things. You know, he, he mentions guys like Craig Bellamy, Robbie Savage, David Thompson. But then when you take that away, I think he was left being a bit like, what am I doing? I'm just running up and down the wing, putting crosses in. This is boring. This wasn't why I fell in love with football. And there's just one more thing that I want to mention because it is amazing reading it back. And that is Stuart Pearce talking about Bentley not playing for the under-21s, yeah. which really badly affected him because he got booed. Saying, and this is Stuart Pierce basically comparing not playing to the 21s to the armed forces, saying, representing your country is not about what suits you, it's about what suits your country, whether it be on the sporting field, whether it be in the armed forces. And look, I, I mean, I know it's not like the point of the piece as such, but I just want, what an absolutely ridiculous thing to say. That is, that is appalling. <laughs> like, it's what, I mean, I think we have, an, we have an issue in this country, which is, one is like conflating... Uh, military service with sport which is ridiculous but also like the attitude to because we we used to have this debate about Jack Wilshere all the time like the attitude to whether or not young players should play in the under 21s European championships which obviously you know it's it's important that England does well at the Euro, at the under 21s but the problem we always had with Wilshere was like people didn't recognize that if you played like an incredibly intense Premier League season of 50 or 60 games it wasn't necessarily the right thing to go and then play another youth development tournament straight after that in June particularly when you might already be in, in contention for the senior teams and as Bentley said in the interview Pierce's comments about this completely threw him under the bus with the public and led to him getting booze on his England senior debut which is a terrible thing to happen and yeah I, I mean look I know this is not a maybe this isn't the right format for this debate but what what an awful thing to say yeah, and I do think, like, again, w- are things better now? I hope so. But it does feel really harsh, doesn't it? Like booing and uh, booing a young player when he makes his England debut because of because of that sort of thing, and, and, and yeah, suggesting he's you know <laughs> like skipped, you know, being cons- conscripted or something like that. Um, yeah, I used to I mean, really I thought- care about the under twenty ones, didn't they? I, I don't, I don't really get the impression that's the case now. But I, people seem to like be really invested in that in that team almost as much as a senior team, and I'm not really sure that that I, I guess maybe it's because so many young players just kind of skip it and go straight into the senior team without r- really kind of playing there too often. But it doesn't really feel like there's as much excitement or passion about it, so I just don't really see that that would happen now. I mean, actually, you mentioned Jack Wilshere, uh, Jack, but I think a similar thing happened with Harry Kane in 2015, didn't it? He'd like had his first sort of full season in the Premier League. And probably played sort of fifty games in all competitions, maybe more, given Spurs were in the Europa League. And then suddenly he's going off at the end of the season, having kind of been on the fringe. He had played, I think, for the England senior team, hadn't he? Maybe by that point, and then went away with the under twenty ones for what was actually a fairly terrible tournament. I think it was in Italy, and they lost all three matches. Maybe Czech Republic actually. Um, and I remember that being kind of seeming like a bit of a mistake at the time. And then obviously you've seen. Know, him go away more or less every other summer for, or every other summer for um, international matches and that perhaps kind of taking its toll on him. But it's also, it's one of these classic things where it's made into such a binary argument and obviously it's more complex than that. And for some players might benefit from going away on this kind of thing and then be better. And so that's held up as like, see, everyone should do it. And for others, it might not be. And it also depends how much you've played. Bentley had played 51 games the previous season, uh, he says there were other players who didn't play as well, but he was kind of held up as the symbol of, you know, this arrogant um, you know, young players who thought they were above playing for the under 21s. Uh, no, I don't know. There, there are two sides to this, but I just think, yeah, bo- booing a, a young player in the Met in the debut feels, feels very harsh. 
Yeah, so I think it was the um, the one that was, you're, you're right about Kane, the one that was in my mind was during the 2010-11 season, which was the season where Wilshire was phenomenal. Uh, there was the 2011 European Under-21 Championships and there was a push to get Wilshire to the 21s, even though during the course of that season, he'd started to play for uh, Capello's senior team. He played in early, in either it was late May or early June in some World Cup qualifiers, uh, it would have been Euro qualifiers, and that's where he picked up the injury that kept him out um, for, for over a year. Yeah, it was the, t- the two-all draw, I think, against Switzerland. Yeah, I was there, I remember it. Oh yeah, I remember it because it was, it was the occasion, uh, I watched it in the Boston Arms in Tufnell Park because it was like my 23rd birthday. Um, <laughs> Did Ashley Young score in this game? Do you know what? Even at, even though I was at the game, this shows how disengaged I, I am. I think I might have been at this England. game as well. I, even worse than Jack, I was in an executive box. Terrible. Oof. Why is that worse than me? The, the Boston Arms is really good. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was in an executive box. Uh, let me just look up the lineup. I'm kind of curious now. <laughs> Sorry, let's just pause this for a second. This is a, this will be a fun bit. I love the idea, Jack. It's like you were celebrating a birthday in style, watching an England-Switzerland game that was so forgettable that that nine years on, two of us who were there can't even really remember what happened. Okay, so uh, England 2-Switzerland 2 was played on Saturday 4th of June 2011, so the day before my 23rd birthday. Uh, And who scored? Tranquillo Barnetta, Frank Lampard penalty, Ashley Young. And Barnetta got two. So it was Ashley Young who equalised in the second half. They went 2-0 up, didn't they? Yeah, 2-0 up quickly, then England came back. Uh, the England team that day was Hart, Glenn Johnson, Ashley Cole, Scott Parker, Rio Ferdinand, John Terry, Theo Walcott, Frank Lampard, Darren Bent, Jack Wilshire, and James Milner. So it must have been one of the last uh, John Terry and Rio Ferdinand mm. games together for England as well. Yeah, because this would have been a few months before uh, that Chelsea QPR game. Anyway, uh, Lasagna Gate is the final topic of conversation for today's podcast. So this is another fantastic piece by Charlie on The Athletic, looking back at that amazing story of the last day of the season, which went spectacularly wrong for Tottenham. Um, Charlie, it's just possible that some of our listeners, maybe outside the UK, aren't totally familiar with what happened. So can you give us just a very a quick recap of the outline of this amazing incident for our listeners? Yeah, so this is the last day of the 2005-2006 season and Tottenham go into it a point ahead of Arsenal uh, in fourth place and fourth place carrying um, Champions League qualification or actually in those days it got you into the, the qualifier but anyway, it was basically seen as into the Champions League and you know, the the holy grail and Tottenham had had this amazing season and really turned it round on a Martin Yole from... You know, being as we, we spoke about last week, being a mid-table, often a lower mid-table team. So here they were, on the cusp of of glory. Um, all they needed to do was better Arsenal's results. So, oh, sorry, uh, match their result. If they if they won, it was theirs. Um, it was all in their hands. They just needed to beat West Ham away. West Ham had the FA Cup uh, the following week, and so in theory we're going to maybe take it a bit easy because they don't want to pick up injuries for that game and things like that. So Tottenham checked into the hotel on the Saturday evening uh, in Canary Wharf, uh, the Marriott Hotel there, and there was a buffet uh, a buffet dinner. A bun- you know, bunch of the players had uh, helped themselves to lasagna, which was one of the options. And that morning they uh, woke up 
about 10 of them reporting that they'd been sick overnight, some of them violently. Um, Callum Davenport, who was one of the people we spoke to for the pieces, uh, for the piece, he was, you know, felt awful. So they go down and, you know, like 10 of them, they're worried they can even get a team out. Frantic calls being made to the Premier League saying, you know, we've got to get this game called off. Premier League send their own, um, send a doctor, I think from the FA uh, and send over some executives as well, but not Richard Scudamore, who's the chief executive, because he was going to Highbury to watch Arsenal Wigan, adding, you know, another layer to this. It was the final game at Highbury. Uh, an Arsenal desperate to get into the Champions League for the you know financial benefits of being able to fund their new stadium they were moving to that summer. So there was a huge amount riding on it. Um, Tottenham desperate to get the game called off. They're told this can't happen. Uh, the players kind of you know rally themselves, stagger to Upton Park. Uh, some, like Michael Carrick, feeling pretty ropey. Uh, Damian Camoli, another person we spoke to for this, who was director of football at the time, uh, remembers players throwing up in the dressing room during Martignol's pre-match team talk. Game starts um, and Spurs actually come in. They look off, really off colour um, for kind of early period, uh, but get back into the game at 1-1, end up losing it 2-1. Arsenal win 4-2 at Wigan, so they get the Champions League spot. Obviously, then there's a huge... Uh, question as to how this happened can Spurs you know get recompensed somehow can the game be replayed etc etc it was put down to food poisoning that that was how all of the players were laid low but then there was an investigation that cleared the hotel uh, there was anything wrong with the food and it was actually uh, about a norovirus that swept through the squad because they're all together in such close proximity uh, and so it was due to that rather than um, you know the dodgy lasagna that People thought in the first place, and but but that lasagna is still how people remember this. It's called Lasagna Gate. It was sung about, but just whatever it was, just an absolutely extraordinary thing to have happened uh, on the last day. Uh, Johnny Jackson, who was at Spurs at the time, he his feeling was that it may have been slightly exaggerated, and that apart from one or two players, most of them by the time the game kicked off were all right. Um, but you know, whatever the varying degrees of difficulty that players were experiencing it was a crazily uh unfortunate thing to happen um especially at that time and because it was the last game of the season it made moving the game even harder i mean it's hard enough at the best of times um and the only real precedent was middlesbrough pulling out of a game against blackburn uh in december 96 which they then got a points deduction for and that was the difference between relegation and staying up so um yeah, just an absolute extraordinary story. And, and in the piece, lots of new details coming out of you know, meetings uh, between Spurs execs and the Premier League in the days after and people coming to the ground uh, with conspiracy theories to tell Daniel Levy that, look, I know what happened. Uh, you know, I can explain all this. Um, so, yeah, just one of those football stories that goes well beyond football and uh, you know, into the realms of scandal. Um, but yeah, it was fascinating. And I loved doing the piece and talking to lots of people who were there and for their memories. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a long read, but hopefully, hopefully one that you'll enjoy. James, what are your, what are your memories of this occasion? Were you there? No, I wasn't. Um, so, so part, part of the suspicion, uh, around the whole thing is the fact this game was mysteriously not on TV, even though it was the last game of the season. I think I'm right in saying, 
the relegation stuff had all been sorted and the title had been won by uh, Chelsea, I guess. Um, so you would kind of assume that Spurs and Arsenal vying for the last Champions League place uh, would, would be the big story on the final day. But actually Sky decided to show Manchester United against Charlton, which I believe was because it was um, Alan Kerbishley's last game in charge. Obviously, they showed the Arsenal game as the last game at Highbury. So the Spurs game was not on TV, which uh, as a sort of 21-year-old sceptic, uh, caught my attention let's put it that way uh, <laughs> and you've never never let it go I've, ne- I've never been able to get past that so yeah so I watched uh, in, a, in a pub in Camden I can't remember what the name of it was now um, on like a I probably shouldn't say the name of it because obviously it was on a dodgy stream probably the first time I'd ever seen like a sort of dodgy stream in a pub um, and in one room there were Spurs fans watching the Spurs game and in the next room around the corner there were Arsenal fans watching the Arsenal game so obviously it was a uh, yeah, not, not a particularly enjoyable afternoon. Then I was sick on the tube home and then I had to finish my dissertation to hand in the next morning. So <laughs> all things, and I got a 2-2, which is a nightmare. Uh, yeah, so all things told, not not a great few days for me. Shows how people can bounce back, James. That's true. It does show how over the course of, over the course of 14 years you can bounce back. I'd love to know what pub you watched it in. Yeah, I can't remember now. Where was it in Camden? It's kind of hidden away on like some side street. I feel like if you said the name of it, I'd remember. We're fulfilling our destiny of moving towards being a North London pub discussion podcast <laughs> uh, rather than a Tottenham Hotspur podcast. But uh, look, we've been talking for a long time. But this is a really, really good piece. Uh, this, I thought I kind of knew a fair bit about this story, but there are some amazing details in there. One, as Charlie says, about the uh, like the in, the politics and the machinations and Comley and Levy and all the conversations they had and and, and, and also some like you know, toilet humour, basically, if you want a better word. Like, mm. you know, there's, a, there's a story with uh, Callum Davenport and a Chinese takeaway box, <laughs> which, you, which you just have to read. You li- you you yeah. have to read it because I'm not going to read it out for you on, on air. <laughs> I, th- this is one of those things, this classic thing where you toil away on a piece and you do tons of interviews and, you know, try and craft it really well. And then ultimately all anyone wants to hear is the Callum Davenport um, Chinese takeaway box story. Um, one thing is what just very quickly I, I thought was interesting um, was Kamoli saying any because because I thought that or, or was wondering whether not qualifying for the Champions League then had dramatic effects on how Spurs then operated that summer and in the years to come uh, with regards to the players they bought and they sold. Uh, he insisted that wasn't really the case and that because they still had that qualifier they would have had that qualifier in August to get into the Champions League. And just because of the way they ran the club at that time, they wouldn't have started going crazy spending that summer. And bear in mind, they still did spend that summer anyway, because it was when they brought Berbatov in. Uh, And as for Carrick, he said Carrick was too far gone wanting to join United and that he had a conversation with him where he was like, if we offered the same as United, would you stay? And Carrick said no. So his view was that even if they had got top four, uh, Carrick would have left that summer, uh, which I thought was quite interesting given how how good a player he he then became and was at that point but you just want to hear about the Callum Davenport thing anyway so yeah we certainly do listeners if you haven't read it already I suggest you do it is a fantastic piece uh that is all we've got time to talk about this week uh next week we'll be back with another podcast when I hope we will be one week closer to a resumption in the Premier League so hopefully we can start looking back at Spurs training and then whatever else happens at Tottenham this week thanks very much bye (laughs) 